right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's go ahead and if we could break up into our groups around us and answer this particular question, I think it'll be a help. In your opinion, that's, that's how I put it, in your opinion, what is the greatest song ever, okay? And if that's a hard one, what is your most memorable song growing up? And the important one is why. Why is that the case? So what is the greatest song ever? What's the most memorable song maybe growing up and why? And you have to answer that, okay? Can you do that right now? Maybe talk amongst yourselves. All right. You know, it's good hearing all the laughter when it comes to songs, right? Songs kind of going down memory lane. Nostalgia always brings a lot of joy, especially when you think of your favorite songs and most memorable songs, <clears throat> excuse me, growing up. If I had time, I would like to ask you why. I mean, it's always interesting to find out why it's your most favorite song or why it's your most memorable song. Um, I want to actually share with you a couple of mine. And so I'm going to have, actually, uh, our audio team uh, play a little bit of it, and you try to guess, okay? This was from my childhood, way back, okay? And so I don't know if you, you could guess this one. Can you play it a little bit? No. <laughs> but close, close. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know this one? The younger guy's like, I have no idea this is. The older people understand exactly. Okay, I'm going to have the, this part. 
stop it. All right, what is it, you guys? You know what it is? With or without you. How many of you, you remember this song from your childhood? Okay, good. All right, good, good, good. When I was, a, when I was in high school, okay, I'll never forget my senior year, my girlfriend broke up with me, okay? And it, she's the one. It wasn't mutual. She broke up with me. So, you know, but she said, it's not you, it's, it's me. But, it's, you know, it's always you, right? So anyway... <laughs> She broke up with me, and I remember, uh, I remember that day. It was the worst day of my life, okay? I remember going straight to my room, uh, curling up in the fetal position in my bed, and pulling the covers over my head, and putting in a cassette tape. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those before. Cassette tapes. And I would put it in my boom box, okay, where you put the cassette tape, and I would rewind it, and I would play this, with or without you. And I would sing to it. And I would I'd cry and sing. And then I would rewind it and I would listen to it all day. That's all I would do. With or without you. It's so sadistic. It's so terrible. I would howl these words. And there was something very comforting. It's really weird about hearing this kind of music over and over. It moved me to despair. Okay? Have you ever had a song do that? Let me give you another one. Uh, could you play the next one? This was huge in my life. If you can guess this one. Very different, right? Very different. Yeah. Yeah, you want to fight somebody now, right? Okay, you can, you, can, you, can turn it, you can turn it off. What is this one? Do you guys know? The Eye of the Tiger, right? The Eye of the Tiger. This was actually my soundtrack. I had it, and I used to put it in my Walkman, and so when I would go to karate tournaments or I would go to these tournaments, I would listen to it. Even, like, I played team sports, soccer, but I would listen to this over and over and over again. The Eye of the Tiger was just my favorite. Just listening to it, right, just motivated me to do whatever I wanted to do, right? Even, like, listening to it now, it motivates me, gets me so pumped up. Uh, the Eye of the Tiger uh, got me to bench press 200 pounds for the first time, when I don't think I could have ever done it. The Eye of the Tiger got me to run three miles when I wanted to give up at one mile, okay? Uh, have you ever had a song uh, do that to you before? I, I guess what I'm saying is songs influence a great, us a great deal, don't they? Uh, they motivate us to get over even the most difficult of times. Uh, songs inspire us to overcome the uncertainties of life. And so what I want to say this morning is I want us to look at what I believe is the greatest song of all time. And that's actually found in Psalm chapter 23. Can we look at the, the greatest song of all time? And you might be thinking, well, I don't know. But did you know that Psalm, the word Psalm literally means song? It's a song to God. Okay? And we know in Scripture that God speaks to us through so many different things in His Word. He speaks through us, through, us uh, through the genre of narrative, or prophecy, or letters, or proverbs, wisdom literature. And God speaks to us also through songs. And these are divine songs. And the reason why I believe this is the greatest song of all time is, number one, it is from God. It's divine. A song, chapter 23 is divinely inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God, it's God breathed, right? You know, I know some of you are trying to fall asleep, but I got you there, okay? Psalm 23 had a human author, David, and we've been studying David in this series. And so I'm closing it out, actually, with this particular psalm, but it had a human author, David, the king of Israel. But God breathed his very ideas into this song. 
So David is the instrument. He is the singer-songwriter, if you were. But God superintended the writing of it. So it expresses what God desires us to hear. It's a divine song, and that's why it's so awesome. But the other reason why I believe it's the greatest song of all times for our culture is because we live in fearful times. I mean, if you turn on the television and you watch the national news or international news, all you see are you know, stories about terrorism and um, nuclear bombs and rogue nations. And when you watch the local news, you see you know, crimes in your area, right? You see problems uh, in your neck of the woods. Uh, you're always seeing uh, things that would fill us with fear. I remember uh, Katie Couric when she was the anchor at a, uh, one of the, the main networks. Uh, she said this, and I thought it was so real. She was just having a heart-to-heart with America where she said, I'm filled with so much anxiety as I live in the 21st century. And you have to just keep from becoming fatalistic. And you have to hope that good can triumph over evil. Now, I appreciated what Katie said because it was with all honesty that she was saying, you know, I just, I just wish or I hope that good can triumph over evil. Well, you know, Psalm 23 promises us far better than that as men and women of God. Psalm chapter 23 inspires, it instructs, it influences you to look at life from the perspective of a child of God. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to get some context for this song. When was this song written? You know, you have probably read Psalm 23 many, many times. I know you probably heard it many, many times. And when you listen to this particular song in its entirety, you're filled with great optimism. You can think of David writing this song at a good time in his life. You could picture him on his throne, healthy and happy, his family around him, his wife and children adoring him, the nation or the kingdom experiencing great peace and prosperity. That's the way you look at it or picture it when you read this psalm. But nothing could be further from the truth because when we look at the historical context of Psalm chapter 23, in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18, we see something very different. I'm going to read a portion to you, 2 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Please follow along with me. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and 50 men to run ahead of him. Verse 2, And he would get up early and stand at the side of the road leading to the city gate. And whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Verse 3, Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. Verse 4, And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land. Then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take a hold of him, and kiss him. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Verse 7, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. And while your servant was living in Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, 
I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Verse 9, and the king said to him, go in peace. And so he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Verse 11, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and were quite innocent, innocent, uh, not knowing anything about the matter. Verse 12, <coughs> and while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom, uh, Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Verse 14, then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly and overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. So here is the historical context of Psalm chapter 23. Here we see that David is now an elderly king. And uh, I appreciate for the two weeks, uh, Pastor Ben and, and Pastor Mark uh, preaching on David being king. But here we see him as an elderly king. He's been a king for a long time. And his son Absalom, whom he loved, did the most despicable thing that a, a son could do to a father. This bright, beautiful, charismatic man went into the business parts of uh, Israel uh, to the marketplace and he secretly campaigned to become king and he secretly gathers support from the officials of David's court in so doing he wins over the top official Ahithophel to betray David and so Absalom goes to Hebron and he goes uh, and he fakes a purpose to go and while there he publicly proclaims himself king and then he gathers an overwhelming army, uh, uh, overwhelming support from Israel's army, and he goes with that army to kill and depose David, his father. Now, all of a sudden, David is forced to flee into the wilderness. And the wilderness is where he used to hide from Saul long ago. We've studied that, didn't we? But now, the difference is, David is an old man. He's not young anymore. You know, there's a saying that the older you get, the scarier you get. Have you ever heard that saying before? It's so true. Because when you're old, you're more fearful. You've lived life. You're aware of the dangers that are around you. When you're old, you don't have the strength or the vitality or the stamina or the confidence that you did in your youth. When you're young, you think you're invincible. You think you can do anything. But when you're older, you realize your vulnerabilities. Every fear is being realized. Absalom, or David's fear of rejection, the son Absalom whom he loved, the advisor Ahithophel whom he trusted, the people that he ruled have rejected him. The fear of ridicule. Everywhere he flees, people mock him and curse him. The fear of failure. <clears throat> he has lost everything instantly and without warning. One minute he was on the throne, the next he's fleeing into the wilderness. The fear of destruction. His son Absalom and Israel's army are hunting him down like some dog to eliminate him. This is when he writes the lyrics to this song. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. You see, David is saying that because God is his shepherd, 
He doesn't need anything else. What? Are you serious? David, of all that's going on, how can you say this? Well, he says it because David focuses not on his fears. He focuses rather on who his shepherd is. I want you to notice the word Lord. It's in all capitals. It's the same word used when God appears to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses asks, what is your name? And God says, my name is I Am. This is the word, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It has the great uh, uh, expression of being self-sufficient, self-sustaining, utterly independent, completely sovereign. God is saying that I am is the one that you need to focus on. And so David acknowledges who he is in light of this divine shepherd. Now, I've done ministry for 20-some years in pastoral ministry, and I've done college ministry for a long time. And so uh, I've done a series of icebreakers. There's one icebreaker. It's the most simple one, but it's one of my favorites. It's uh, if you were to name an animal that best describes you, what would it be? Have you, have you ever played that before? Okay. Yeah, everybody has, right? What animal best describes you? And I love it because everybody gives such interesting, such amazing uh, descriptions of animals. And everybody tries to share the most interesting of animals, right? I always go with like lion because I want to I wanna look good, have good hair, you know, be commanding. I want people to look at me a certain way, you know, so I go with that or I go with something else that's really exotic or something really cool. But I've never heard in an icebreaker somebody who said, you know what, I'm like a sheep. I'm a domesticated sheep. No one has ever said that. You know why? Because domesticated sheep are not a flattering picture. As a matter of fact, sheep, domesticated ones, are fundamentally stupid, right? In that they are completely vulnerable. They're completely dependent on someone to take care of them. If you left a sheep out in the wilderness by itself, it will surely, uh, in you know, a matter of a day, be a prey for some predator. Because sheep can't survive on their own in the wilderness. And you know, this is what the Bible says human beings are likened to. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 says, We all like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So many run from the shepherd thinking that they don't need him. But not David. He makes a profound admission. I am a sheep in need of a shepherd. You see, David realizes that if God is my shepherd... If I have a relationship with him where he shepherds me, then I don't need anything else. Now, you might ask, why? Why is that? Well, in verse 2, let's look at it. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. I want you to notice something fascinating. In the Hebrew language, the emphasis here is on uh, the adjective and not the noun, Okay? It's on the adjective. So if I were to read it this way, this shepherd makes me lie down in pastures green. This shepherd leads me beside waters quiet. The emphasis is on green and on quiet. Now why? I want you to do this with me. We've done it many times as an exercise. Put your hand on your head. Can you do that? Okay, and you know what we're going to do, right? Let's take off the 21st century baseball cap, okay? Whatever it is, okay? Put it down, okay? And now I want you to put on, put, put your hand back on top of your head. 
You're putting on now the ancient Hebrew sudra, okay, what Bedouins used to wear, right? The Hebrew sudra. So what I've done is I've asked you to, and this is a rule of interpretation, you take off the 21st century understanding of things and you put on the ancient understanding as we read this. And the reason why this is so important, because we have a contemporary mindset when we read a lot of this stuff, okay? In our contemporary mindset, when we read, he makes me lie down, he makes me, he leads me, right? We have an idea of a dog trainer. Um, maybe Caesar Milan, Dog Whisperer, have you seen that? It's a great show, okay? What does he teach in that show? To be the pack leader, right? So he's always like grabbing his dog or whatever dog and making those noises, right? To make it obey. But can I share with you, if we have that mindset where we think for, uh, uh, sheep can be trained like dogs, if we're just a pack leader for the sheep and make it or force it to lie down, uh, it'll work. That'll never work because you can't force a sheep to lie down. It'll give you a stupid look, bah, you know, and it'll just keep doing what it's doing, right? The hardest thing that you can do is to force a sheep to lie down. You can't train them to rest. There have to be conditions that are met in order for a sheep to feel a sense of security, to feel freedom from frustration before they lie down. Isn't that terrible? You know what that means? That means that the shepherd actively has to do things. He has to actively look for the perfect place, for the pastures that are green. He has to remove all the hindrances and obstacles and dangers so that the sheep will feel comfortable enough to lie down. Do you know what else? Sheep won't drink from a running stream. They are scared of running water. They'll look at you, bah, you know, in a scared way, and they won't drink. So what does the shepherd have to do? He has to actively manipulate the stream. He has to design a dam to bind up the water so that it's a still oasis so that the sheep will feel comfortable to drink it. That's terrible, isn't it, right? Dumb sheep, right? What is David saying in verse 2? My God is actively, personally involved in my life. He's preparing those pastures that are green. He is stilling the streams so that they are quiet. He cares for us even in the details of life. You know, Jesus in the Gospels tells us not to fear, and he says, consider the lilies. They're insignificant, yet God clothes them. Consider the ravens. They're insignificant, yet God feeds them. Consider the sparrows. They're insignificant, yet God pays attention to them. Consider the very hairs on your head, insignificant, yet God numbers them. The argument is from lesser to greater. If God cares for insignificant things like hair and lilies and sparrows, won't he actively, intimately care even more for those that are significant, like his children? See, David declares that since God is that kind of shepherd to him, verse 2, he restores my soul. Verse 3, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I want you to see here that David points out that God guides him in right paths. That's what righteousness means, right paths. You know, today when we think of the wilderness, right, with our 21st century baseball cap understanding, we think of fun, we think of campouts, we think of just having a great time at Angelus a National Forest. But in the land of Israel, the wilderness was completely different. It was an extremely dangerous place. I've had friends and also professors 
who have gone to Israel, and they always tell you you need to bring an experienced, well-knowledgeable guide. Why? Because you could be walking one step in stable ground, and the next step you take, you could fall off a 300-foot cliff to your death. You need those people who know that area, that terrain, because the topography is treacherous. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 8, when the armies of David and Absalom finally do meet in the wilderness, and that's where they meet in the wilderness, the battle, the Bible said, took the lives of 20,000 men, most of them Absalom's army. Let me read to you in verse 8 what it says of chapter 18. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the wilderness claimed more lives that day than the sword. What does that mean? That means that more soldiers died falling off cliffs, plummeting to their deaths than they did in actual combat. The reason why David won was he knew the right paths and the other army did not. Isn't that powerful? You see, God, my shepherd, knows the right paths. He makes sure that I walk down the secure and righteous ones. So many of the paths in our life can lead to destruction. And we're finite, we're fallible human beings, and we only can see what's in front of us And we can't see the beginning from the end. That's why God tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he, not we, he'll direct your paths. Amen? God wants us to trust in him because we need a GPS. We need a God positioning satellite. We need someone who can guide us. You like that? Guide us into successful living. You see, David acknowledges that if I follow the shepherd, that's all I need. I know, I like that one too. Okay, verse four, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, look at this in context. We've heard the term valley before. We've been studying it, haven't we? David is in a dangerous, treacherous place. He's in a valley. He's in the shadow of death. He and his party are completely vulnerable. They're outnumbered. They're in a desperate situation. Absalom and Ahithophel are hunting him down. In 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 2, here Ahithophel advises Absalom, and this is what he says, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weak and weary, and I would strike him, and here's the word, with terror. That is the exact same word used in Psalm chapter 23 and verse 4, I will fear no evil. David is saying, I will not be terrorized by Absalom or Ahithophel or by the evil that they intend upon me. David proclaims he doesn't fear the evil. Now that doesn't mean that evil isn't present. Doesn't mean that the danger isn't lurking. You see, God doesn't erase the evil that is present in our lives. And that's a truth that we have to understand. Just because we pray deliverance doesn't mean he takes that away from us. He simply shows us how to focus on him. You know, I love uh, watching, uh, there's YouTube clips on shepherds calls to sheep and how they react. And there's one particular uh, one uh, in, ancient, uh, uh, in ancient Bedouin culture where uh, there's certain calls that sheep, even though they're fundamentally, fundamentally stupid, will hear the voice of the shepherd. So when a wolf comes to uh, separate the flock and their goal is to scatter the sheep and to get one of the the weaker sheep, the shepherd will stand on a high rock and he will make a call, a call that's very distinct to him. 
And when the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, do you know what they do? Their eyes focus on the shepherd, and that call, they'll actually do something that's very counterintuitive to what they want to do. They come together. So instead of separating, what they'll do is come together and actually trap the wolf that's trying to separate the sheep so that the shepherd can go and dispatch that wolf, that predator. I think that's beautiful. Here, David is choosing not to fear the wolf. David is choosing to listen to the shepherd, to look at the shepherd, to focus his entirety on the shepherd. And we find great confidence when we fix our eyes on the shepherd and not our situation. Even in the most terrifying or terrorizing of circumstances, I can find comfort. Hey, we've been studying that David has been in the valleys. We've studied that. As a young man, uh, David is in the valleys because he's running for his life from King Saul. He hasn't forgotten this truth that he's learned from the valley experiences many, many years ago. So that even now as an old man, David says, I don't fear the valleys. I am comfortable, as it were, in these valleys. Why? Because let's look in verse 4. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The truth or the uh, tools of an ancient Near East shepherd was, number one, the rod. A short 18-inch club. It had a ball in the end. It was tapered, right, so that it could stab. And it was used as a weapon to kill predators and protect sheep. That was the weapon of the shepherd. In the Old Testament, the euphemism that Israel was protected by God was that all people passed under his rod, his shepherd's rod. That's the idea of protection. Not only that, but the other instrument was a staff, a longer a stick with a hook on the end. And everyone knows what a shepherd's staff looks like. But it was used to uh, guide and, and even uh, pull out sheep from pits and snares. David's comfort is found in God's active protection and deliverance, even in the dangerous places. I want you to notice this picture, verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Have you ever read that with your 21st century baseball cap on? Have you ever read that and thought, I don't understand what he's talking about. This is the craziest thing. Why would he prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? You know, uh, when I was in junior high and I first came to junior high, me and my friends, we were persecuted and bullied by some eighth graders, okay? And back then, you know, uh, there weren't this, this um, you know, big campaign to stop bullying. When you got bullied, you just got bullied. And I remember the eighth graders would chase us around, and they would do terrible things to us that I'd like to forget, but I can't, okay? It's in my head. And I remember some of the things that they do. But I remember one instance where these eighth graders saw us, and we began to run. We wanted to run from them. I think it was sometime after school. And we ran into the bathroom. That's the worst place that you can go. But we're seventh graders, right? We don't know anything. So we run into the bathroom, and they got us, right? And, and we're scared. But the minute I got in the bathroom, no one's really in the bathroom except for this guy, Brett, who was a ninth grader. He's a wrestler, a football player, big guy. And for some reason, Brett liked me, okay? We were friends. I don't know how a seventh grader and a ninth grader could be friends, but he was really cool with me. And, and so right away... <laughs> When we ran in the bathroom, we saw Brett, and both of us, uh, me and my friend, we hid behind Brett, okay? And we kind of just stood there, right? So I remember the eighth graders came in, and they looked, and they saw Brett, and he was uh, washing his hands, he was drying his hands, 
and they looked over and their eyes got really big. They were in fear, okay? And I picked up on that. I'm a smart guy. So I picked up on the fear. So I started going, what's up? What's up? You know? And I started taunting them. I would never have done that if Brett wasn't there. But I was hiding behind him going, what's up? What's up? You know why I was doing that? Because I was in complete security. I felt completely secure because of my friend Brett. And those eighth graders, by the way, they went away. Not because of us, but because we had a secret weapon. We had this big, uh, big guy that was uh, standing there to protect us. This is my point. In the ancient Near East culture, if a Bedouin opened his tent to you, if he set a meal before you, if he made you an honored guest at a feast that he's prepared for you, he was sending a message to everyone around that I am this person's friend, that I'm on their side. And if you want to harm this person, you've got to go through me first, right? God is being the Brett, right? He is being that person who says, this person is under my protection. What does that tell us? That God fights our battles. David, even in the worst valleys, is saying that God is going to fight his battles. Verse 5, I love this. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now again, this is a very interesting thing. In the contemporary culture, if I came over to your house and I took a, you know, a big jug of olive oil and I poured it on your head, would you feel blessed? No, you'd be angry, right? But in the desert culture, oil is considered extremely precious. It was used for hygiene. It was used to clean pores from the desert sand. It was used medicinally, excuse me, to treat sunburn, to treat chaps, right? It was used cosmetically in perfumes to make someone smell good in that desert culture. So oil was very precious. Water was very precious. In a desert culture, it's an absolute, I mean, it, in, in life, it's an absolute necessity. In a desert culture, it's invaluable. And we live in a semi-desert culture where we don't waste water, do we, right? So rain is not an irritant in a desert culture. Rain is a blessing. And here we see that when someone pours oil and water in excess, if a desert dweller gave you that, those elements in excess, he was making a statement of how important you are in that person's eyes. He was lavishing you. He was heaping upon you great favor. Here's my point. When God is your shepherd, he not only cares for you, he sees you as his most precious. Amen? God loves you with an extravagant favor. How do I know this? Because in verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. I'm blown away by this. Notice David is absolutely unswervingly confident in this statement all the days of his life. How can you say God's goodness and his favor with you, David? You've been rejected. A coup d'etat has just been done by your own son. That doesn't sound like God's love. David, you're being hunted down like some animal. That doesn't sound like God's goodness. David, you're experiencing the worst trial of your life. How can you be so confident? How can you, uh, how can you uh, state God's goodness and love? Well, we see this because we see it in David. And we've been studying this, haven't we? Can I remind you of Romans 8, 28? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. That's God's goodness. Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's the intent 
of all of these trials, all of these valleys in our life, is to develop us to look more and more like Jesus Christ. You see, the reason why you can rejoice in God's goodness and love all the days of your life is you know that he is developing you and maturing you even in your tribulations. James 1 uh, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops something. It develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. And we have seen, haven't we, in the life of David, we have seen this maturity come to fruition. We've seen this person become complete in his relationship with the Lord. Verse six, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Wow, David, how do you know? Because the Lord is his shepherd. God sovereignly leads him. God is intimately at work to meet his needs. God guides him in right paths so he'll succeed. God protects him by fighting his battles. God lavishes favor upon him. The Lord is completely involved in his life. And see, that's the beauty of it. Being a sheep is not a bad thing because we know as as sheep that our shepherd is completely involved in our lives. And verse six, here's the greatest of all, the cherry on top. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is David's greatest promise and this is the perspective that we need to have, that David focuses not, uh, not on his fears, not on his earthly uh, situation, but he focuses on his heavenly home, being forever with God. You see, the reason why David can deal with fear, why he can manage difficulty, the reason why he can handle uncertainty is David is not looking at the here and now. He is rather looking at eternity with God. And this is a reminder to us, life is a vapor. Everything that we, that we struggle with and we try to attain and we strive for is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. It really, from that perspective, doesn't mean a whole lot because what we have in eternity matters far more than what we handle or what we have to deal with here in this testing time that we call our human existence right here on this earth. And here David is saying, Don't look at the here and now. Rather, look at the eternity that you have with God, and that should give you the strength, the motivation that you need. Hey, does this song inspire you? Does it motivate you? If you have a shepherd, you have all you need. Verse two, he leads you from the front. Verse three, he guides you from behind. Verse four, he's walking by your side. Verse five, as you look ahead, you see his provision. Verse six, as you glance behind, His goodness and love are trailing you, and you have all eternity to share with him. See, David is emphasizing through the verbs and prepositions, through the lyrics of this song, that your shepherd is surrounding you in his perfect love. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, how we need it in our lives. We thank you for the life of David. And we thank you that we were able to study a man of God that is a lot like us, that struggles with the same things that we struggle with in our personal lives. But Lord, knowing that he is an example to us, a standard in a way that we can understand what it means to have you as our shepherd and to actively live in that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.